Amen. Thank the Lord for his word this morning. Father, first we um, thank you for this Lord's Day that you have given us. We pray, Lord, that you may hear our prayer this morning uh, and answer it. Lord, we uh, pray this morning for uh, our church family. We have several out of town uh, this morning, Daryl and Mary and the girls. Uh, Emily and um, Mike and and uh, Miss Sandy and her absence, Lord. We pray that you be with all of them uh, today, and you know we can't wait to see their uh, faces again. Uh, Lord, we pray this morning that uh, you settle our hearts and our eyes on the simplest of your commands, that to send your Holy Spirit to empower our faithful obedience to. Uh, your word. Lord, I pray that you continue to fill this church with people who value your word over uh, other opinions. Lord, I pray that you make it such that the most important thing in the world to us is to do uh, what we are certain is absolutely true through your word. Lord, I pray for our church that you continue to foster spiritual unity among us according to your word. Lord, let us love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Lord, may we keep loving one another earnestly since love covers the multitude of sins. May we live in harmony with one another, agree with one another, and live in peace so that the God of love and peace will be with us. Lord, may we greet one another with true love. May we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. May we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. May we behave with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. May we be kind to one another and tenderhearted. Lord, may we encourage one another and build one another up. Lord, may we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Lord, if one has a complaint against another, may we forgive. Lord, may we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. Lord, may we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. May we show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Lord, as each has received a gift, may we use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. And Lord, may we clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. For Lord, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Lord, all those scriptures testify to the one another nature of the church. And Lord, may we faithfully live 
those commands out. Lord, let us not pass judgment on one another. Become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. May we not lie to one another, seeing that we have put off the old self with his practices. Lord, may we not speak evil against one another. Lord, these are good things that we know and can do when empowered by your spirit. Lord, let us continue to foster that unity as your word tells us, to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, I pray for every member of this church uh, facing disruptions, facing consternation or worry because of uh, vaccine requirements. Lord, grant them the strength of their convictions and show them mercy. Help them to stand before you with honest hearts and to trust that you will carry them through. Lord, help our church to be ready to help wherever we can. Lord, intervene on their behalf if it is against their conscience to do these mandates that the government is demanding of us. Lord, I pray for those who strongly uh, believe that our governing authorities are in error. May they express their views carefully. Always remember to honor their leaders just as much as they fear God. And Lord, keep us from trusting in mere men and women. But, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to rest on you like a weaned child on a mother's lap. Lord, we pray for strength as we look at what's going on in our culture and how the culture is trying to encroach its world, its worldliness and its secular worldview on the church. Lord, strengthen us here at the Living Church to have our deep biblical convictions and to hold to them no matter what the cost may be to us. We may lose the affections of friends and even family members. But Lord, we must obey your word. We must stand on the truth that has been revealed in your word. Give us the courage and the conviction to do so. And Lord, pray for our sister churches that they do the same. That they hold to their convictions that the the pastors at those churches and the elders leading those churches, that they may hold fast to your truth also. And Lord, as we uh, come down to the preaching of the word, as we look at Ezra 9 and the, the godly way to confront sin, Lord, help us to look at our own sin, not just the sins of Israel. Help us to look at our own sin. Help us to, to do a proper self-examination. To see if we're confronting the sin in our life. As the scripture uh, prescribes us to do. Lord forgive us of our sins. Forgive me of my sins. As I prepare to preach about sin. And Lord may you be glorified. As I preach this morning. And as we hear uh, the message. And Lord may this message ultimately point to Christ. Who purchased our salvation by giving of his body on that tree. Who became a curse for us. Who bore our sins in the body. Who died in our place. So that we may be free from the 
the tyranny that sin brings. Father, feed us this morning from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Man, let us turn to Ezra, the ninth chapter. We're almost finished with this book. I pray that these sermons have been a blessing to you all as we've uh, gone uh, through it. And this morning, uh, as I you know, sent out the s- service details um, yesterday, our sermon topic is the godly way to confront sin. And this comes from Ezra, the ninth chapter, as we uh, look at how Ezra dealt with sin and how that is a prescription for us and how we ought to deal with uh, our sin. So we're going to look at our passage this morning. And it's on the heels of the temple being restored and the priests being put in place, the gifts for the temple uh, being given, and the exiles returning to Jerusalem as we looked at last week. So you have this great thing that took place. Everything is settled. And then we have the problem of intermarriages. It's almost like the book of Numbers where something good happens, then next thing you know, it goes downhill. So here we see in chapter 9 that there's a problem within uh, these exiles as they came back into Jerusalem, and it was the problem of intermarriage. And we're going to see the sin in this. So just looking at the chapter uh, 9 here, it reads... When these things were done, again, with historical narratives, they don't give a time period. It's not in, in real time, so we don't know how much time took place between the end of uh, chapter 8 and the beginning of verse, I mean, beginning of chapter 9. <coughs> we don't know how long of a span that was. Um, but we know that a time span did pass. So it says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, The hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair on my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. And having torn my uh, garment and my robes, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has gone up to the heavens 
Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we are forsaking your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, and with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end, I'm sorry, from end to another, with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no more remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Hmm. So that was his prayer to God in response to the sin of intermarriage. I want to begin with the illustration about um, worldviews. And we've talked about worldviews before. We did a Bible study on biblical worldview a few years ago. We're going to do one here um, at the beginning of the year after we finish the book of uh, Deuteronomy. But there are different worldviews concerning sin. Take a mass shooting. You know, the mass shooting happens. You know, someone kills a number of people where there was the uh, you know, different school shootings that have taken place over the years. Um, the movie theater shooting that happened, I think, in 2012 or 13. You know, you have all these shootings that take place. You have all these murders that have had a, that have taken place in our city since uh, last year. You know, the murder rate has increased in a lot of our cities. You know, you have homelessness that has increased. You go to larger cities like Los Angeles or uh, Seattle or New York, and you see homeless encampments all throughout the cities on the city streets. You see sin everywhere. You see rampant sin everywhere. And the question people often ask is, why is there so much sin in the world? What would possess someone to go into a school and shoot children? 
Uh, what would possess someone to go into a grocery store and open fire on people that are minding their business uh, doing shopping as happened at a Kroger store, I think, earlier this year uh, out west? What would possess someone to go into a house filled with family members and kill six or seven of them? We see those things and wonder. Well, uh, sociologists, those who study uh, society and societal systems, say that society is the problem. That the neighborhood that a person grew up in or the school they went to or uh, their upbringing is uh, the problem. And a sociologist solution would say, put a person in a better environment and they'll make better choices. Uh, humanists uh, who are secular and not religious, uh, humanists believe that we are born neutral, that we are born with a blank slate, and that our cultural conditioning determines our behaviors. And humanism believes that man is made better by pursuing an education. Uh, psychology and psychiatry will say that that person is not to blame, that that person perhaps has a mental illness. And this is not to play down mental illness, but if you notice, with most mass shootings, that word comes up, that that person perhaps suffered from mental illness, and we don't even know what it is. Uh, they could be on some type of antipsychotic uh, medication. But often they go to mental illness. They'll say that, that person is not to blame because what that claim is, it, it takes the responsibility away from that person. And their solution is perhaps a behavior modification, modification rather, or having willpower or having more self-esteem or perhaps prescription drugs or therapy that tells them to, to look within. You know, like the uh, song that was sung, Learning to Love Yourself is the Greatest Love of All. That is one of the most unbiblical songs of all time. But that's what psychology and psychiatry says. Give them more drugs. And most of those people that suffer from those mental illnesses, the drugs are only masking the symptoms. But they're not, no, they're treating rather the symptoms, but are not getting down to the heart of the problem. They just mask the symptoms. Marxism and socialism may say that the problem is social classes. That some people that are born poor deserve to be rich and deserve to be wealthy. And because they're poor, they're going to go rob people. They're going to commit murder. Why? Because they're poor. And the solution is to redistribute wealth and power or increase the minimum wage through income. Uh, they'll claim income uh, equality that perhaps if they got paid more, they'll make better decisions. Some will say that politics is a solution, that the wrong political parties are in power, or that there's poor legislation at the state level and at the federal level. And the solution is to elect the right Republican or the right Democrat, or to legislate morality, or to pass tougher laws and tougher Synthesis, while not even enforcing the laws that are already on the books. The laws are already tough against a lot of these crimes that we see. 
So you're going to create more laws for law enforcement to enforce when they can't really enforce the laws that are already on the books because there are so many of them. So the solution, sometimes people say, is politics. But biblical Christianity says that the problem of man is original sin, total depravity. We talked about that a few months ago when we went through the doctrine of sin. That man is totally depraved. Depraved means that man is totally wicked. That, as the psalmist says, we are conceived in sin. We're not born with a blank slate, as the humanists say, and in society, our surroundings either make us good or bad. No, we're bad from conception. The minute that fertilization takes place, sin is marked on us. That's why David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. In conception, we have the mark of sin on us. That is the Christian view. It's not that a child grows up and, you know, they're innocent when they're five or six years old and then they start going to school and being around all these other bad kids and, and all of a sudden they become bad. No, they were already that way when they were conceived. The problem is sin. It is total depravity. It is the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. Man's problem is his sin nature. The nature that resides in all of us. And as Christians, we of all people must know that man's greatest malady, man's greatest sickness, man's greatest illness is sin. Total depravity. And the solution to sin is God. Only God can save us by the means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God can save us from our sins. Not, not politics, not psychology, not uh, increased minimum wage, not changing society, not growing up in a better environment. None of those things can change a person. It may affect some of their decision-making to some extent, but it is not going to change their hearts. Only God can do that. I have some quotes from here from some Puritans about sins. George Swinnock said, a sheep may fall into the ditch and defile himself, but he hastens out of it as soon as he can. But the swine chooses a dirty place and wallows all day long in the mud and mire. A saint may fall into sin, but he hastens to recover himself by repentance. A sinner lives in it day and night. George Swinnick also said, kill sin when it is small. He says, the ship that leaks is more easily emptied at the beginning than afterwards. The bird is easily killed in the egg, but once hatched and flying, we may kill it when we can catch it. A frequent reckoning with ourselves will pluck sin up before it is rooted in our soul. Sin that seems small, seems innocuous, meaning innocent. That is the sin that entraps us the most. And when the Puritan said, kill sin when it is small, that means as soon as you see it, you address it. You, 
you confess it, you turn away from it. The reformer John Owen said, sin cannot be killed easily. Listen to this. He says, let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he does not follow up his blow until he be slain, may regret that he ever began the fight. And so will he who undertakes the deal, un rather undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to death. Sin will after a while revive and the man must die. It is a great and fatal, fatal mistake if we suppose this work will admit of any remissness or intermission. In other words, we should always be about the business of killing sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Colossians to mortify the deeds of the flesh. In other words, to put sin to death. It is a constant work that we must do. And that is the biblical view of sin. And that is how we have to look at it. So the big idea of this passage this morning is that the godly reaction to sin is to recognize it from Scripture, to mourn over it, to confess it without excuse. So our first principle is to recognize sin from the Scripture. So the first question is, looking at this passage, what was Israel's sin? What was the big deal? Why was it so serious that Israel had grieved, I'm sorry, Ezra had grieved as he did? The problem was intermarriage. Intermarriage with pagans was strictly forbidden by God for religious reasons, not for ethnic reasons. God told Israel in Deuteronomy 7, listen to this. And this was over a thousand years before this exile. And this is what God told Israel. He says, when the Lord... Your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations from before you. And he gives all these names as is listed here in the first verse of Ezra 9. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. And this is what he says in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 7. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Why? Verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So that the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So when Ezra, who was God's priest, he knew the word. He knew this passage in Deuteronomy. He knew what it said. He knew what it meant. As a scribe, Ezra knew the consequences for violating God's commandments. He knew the history. He knew that Solomon had done the same thing. He knew that all the other leaders of Israel had gone after the foreign gods 
and after the foreign women. And he knew that that was one of the reasons that led Israel into exile. He knew this. So when he heard the report that some had taken daughters as their wives in verse 2, that the Holy Seed is mixed with the peoples of these lands, he says, I tore my garment and my robe. He was what we call indignant. He had a righteous anger. He had a righteous anger. Why? Because these people have forbidden God's. I'm sorry, they, they did what God had forbidden. God had forbidden them to marry these pagans because he knew that their hearts would go toward these pagans. That it wouldn't go the other way around. And that is always the case with having company or keeping company with unbelievers. It don't mean that you can't be friends with them. It don't mean that you can't work alongside them. But you're not to intermarry with them. That's why Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 6 to not have fellowship with unbelievers, to not be unequally yoked. Unequally yoked basically means to be in business with them or to marry an unbeliever. That is one of the greatest mistakes that a Christian can make is <coughs> to marry an unbeliever because you worship two different gods. And you know what happens most of the time? Rather than you drawing the unbeliever to Christ, that unbeliever is going to draw you away from Christ. That almost happens every single time. You marry an unbeliever, you can guarantee you that they're going to pull you and they're going to sway you away from Christ. It's just going to happen. Why? Because you, they serve a different God than you do. They don't serve the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ as a believer does, as a true believer does. And so Ezra was indignant about this. He was so upset about the foreign marriages because such pagan alliance meant that the people had broken faith with their covenant God. The God who had called them out from among the nations. He called them out from among them as his own special people. And you're going to go back and marry these people that God said don't do because you're going to worship their God? And you think about marrying an un unbeliever? That guess what? They're going to draw you away. They're going to draw your affections away. They're going to draw your desires away. And this passage does not forbid interracial marriages, but it forbids marriage to unbelievers. Because you have uh, instances in scripture where uh, Jews marry outside the Jewish family. One of the greatest examples is Ruth and Boaz because Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Moabite. Moabites were one of those nations that God had forbid. And one of those nations in here that Ezra talks about in the first chapter. But there was a difference. The difference was that Ruth had made a commitment to worship Boaz's God. That was the big difference. And it says here in Ruth, uh, the first chapter here in verses 16 and 17, Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn my back after following you. For wherever you go, I will go. 
and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. So she is a Moabite, made a vow to worship the God of Israel. And so that's why the marriage between her and Boaz was kosher, was fine. And Ruth, if you look at the genealogy of Christ, Ruth was the grandmother of King David. So Ruth is listed in the genealogy of Christ in the first chapter of Matthew. And also you have Moses. His wife was, uh, was Ethiopian. But she took on the faith of Israel also. She worshipped the God of Israel. So these foreign women had worshipped the God of Israel. And that was the difference. So we see here Ezra was upset because he knew what the consequences of this intermarriage sin would be and what it would, uh, we, what it would do for uh, the people. And the bigger problem here, especially in our culture, is that uh, Christianity here in the West has, has acquiesced or has complied uh, with the culture concerning sin. They say that sin is not the problem, that it's okay, it's nothing wrong, you know, marry whoever makes you feel good. Have alliances with, you know, whoever you're cool with. But the Bible is clear. Sin is real and sin is the problem and it must be reckoned with. Just as Ezra reckoned with the sins of these people, we ought to reckon with it also. So a foundational question I want to ask is, what is sin? Biblical definitions of sin. 1 John 3 and 4 says that sin is lawlessness. And what is lawlessness? Lawlessness, in essence, is no regard for law. No regard for respecting law. Think about all the looting and rioting that took place over last summer. That's what you call lawlessness. People had no regard for the personal and private property of business owners or for federal property, burning down police precincts, no, no respect for God's ordained authority. They were lawless, and lawlessness was allowed. It was encouraged. You have people encouraging lawlessness. That is a sin. It is a sin to loot. It is a sin. It is a biblical sin to destroy someone else's property. How would you feel if someone came to your house and threw a Molotov cocktail inside of your window and burned your house down because they were angry about uh, something that happened? Would you say, oh, okay, I understand how you feel. <laughs> I, understand, I understand why you're angry. That someone that got shot by the police for resisting arrest, I understand that. Yeah, you can go burn my house down. You can go burn my business down because you're angry. You can destroy my livelihood that I use to help feed my family and to help serve the community that I put all of my money into. Lawlessness. And our culture said, that's fine. They got insurance. That's theft. That is lawlessness. And that's what sin is. That is how lawlessness look, looks. No regard for the law. 
And it's not a matter of whether you agree with it or not. If you don't like it, change it. Become a legislator. Run for office. Change the law if you don't like it. But we as Christians are called to be law-abiding people. And we're not to promote, we're not to encourage lawlessness as Christians. That is for the world to do. We're called to respect the law. We're called to honor the law, regardless of whether we agree or not. As long as the law doesn't call us to disobey God's words, God's commands, or go against our Christian <coughs> conscience, we are called to obey them. We're not called to be lawless or to encourage it. So when we think about uh, that word lawlessness, when the Bible says sin is lawlessness here in 1 John 3, that's what it means. Sin is also, uh, Paul says in Romans 3 and 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In that context, sin comes from the Greek word uh, harmatia, which means missing the mark, you know, to fall short. So sin means to fall short, to, to miss the mark. What else does scripture tell us about sin? It tells us what sin is and what sin does. There, there, there are two things about sin that we need to know. We need to know what it is and what it does. Sin is a law. Paul said this in Romans 7 and 21. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. No matter where we go, sin is always present. Now, we always have to remind ourselves as believers, sin is in us but it's not on us because we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. But we do have a sin nature that resides in us, okay, as a mark of battle. Sin is not on us, but it is in us. And wherever we are when we will to do good. Guess what? Sin is always present. Evil is always present with us. Paul goes on to say in Romans 7 and 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my body. So sin is a law. Next, what does sin do to us? Sin does something to us. It crouches. It separates. It violates. And it exacerbates. Exacerbates means to make things worse. How does sin crouch? If you go back to Genesis, the fourth chapter, when uh, Cain had become angry with his brother. God said to Cain in Genesis 4 and 6. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well. You will not be accepted. And if you do not do well. Sin lies at the door. And his desire is for you. But you should rule over it. 
Sin was crouching at the door of Cain's heart. It was, it was waiting. It was, it was crouching like a lion does when a lion sees its prey. The lion didn't stand up proud and looking like that. No. You ever seen it? Those tigers and lions, they're, they're crouching. They're waiting for the moment to attack. And that is how sin is described. Sin separates us. Isaiah 40, 50, uh, 59 and 2. Your sin has separated you from your God. The moment that we sin, we're separated from God. Because God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And he cannot look at sin. God hated sin so much that he punished his son in our place for it. He bore our punishment. And he was the only one who could. So Isaiah told the people, your sins have separated you from your God. <laughs> sin also violates, again, 1 John 3 and 4. Sin is lawlessness. And then also sin exacerbates. 2 Timothy 3 and 13 says this. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. People who are captured and captivated by sin, they only get worse. They only get worse. And as I said a few weeks ago, nobody ever hits rock bottom. There's no rock bottom to sin. The Bible doesn't support that notion, that axiom that, oh, we just need to wait. They just, uh, just wait until they reach rock bottom. They'll, they'll come around. No, that doesn't that always happen. We, we can't assume grace like that. Everybody's not going to be like the prodigal son. The prodigal son is not about how the prodigal son, um, you know, came to himself and went back. To his father, the prodigal son, is about how Christ receives repentant sinners. But everybody's not going to be like that. Everybody's story's not going to be like that where, you know, God, God just needs to wake them up. <laughs> how many wake-ups does a person need? They don't need one. But some people's consciences can become seared. Well, God, remember, God gives people over to their rebellion. He does it as a punishment against him, just as he did in the book of Numbers that we studied in Bible study. When those people wanted to quail instead of the manner that God was giving them and they, they um, aggravated basically Moses and Aaron about it. They said, oh, we had it better in Egypt. We had leeks and all these, this nice fish and all this good food. And, and here we have this manna. And it grieved Moses and Moses had uh, interceded because the Lord was angry with them. The Bible says his anger was kindled against him. So he says, guess what? Yes, you're going to get quail. Not one day, not two days, not three days, not a week, but a whole month. You're going to get it and, until it comes out of your nostrils. He gave them over to their rebellion. And God will do that in judgment against someone. He'll give them over to their rebellion. So that's what sin does. It exacerbates. It makes worse. It makes a person worse. It makes them darker. 
And God, through his mercy, can restrain evil. He does restrain evil. That's why we have laws. That's why we have legislation. That is, that is an act of God's common grace. That God does, in his mercy, restrain evil. Man is not as wicked as he could be. It may seem like it. We've seen atrocities throughout world history, but man can be more wicked than even that that we've seen. So therefore, we have to hate sin because all have sinned. Again, Romans 3 and 23. We're not to become comfortable with sin prevailing in our life or in the life of other believers. We should never get comfortable with sin. We are to loathe sin because God loathes it. And then we're also to tremble at God's word. Look at as we said here in verse 4. He says, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who have been carried away captive. In contrast to those who have participated in inter, um, intermarriage, there were those who did see it as an abomination. There were those who saw it as a grave sin. They didn't want to participate in that because they did what? They feared the words. They trembled at the word of God. They respected, they reverenced God's word. We have to humble ourselves under the authority of God's word. Friends, this is what it boils down to. If the Bible calls it sin, it is sin. How far Christians have fallen away from that. How much have we allowed the culture to tell us what sin is? That men can have babies. That men can compete against girls, females in sports because we don't want them to kill themselves. Because they're deluding themselves by believing a lie. That's a sin. And we know the, you know, we, we've uh, crossed this bridge uh, way long ago. Uh, two men and two women are, are not a marriage. There's no such thing. It's not. There's no such thing as a gay marriage. It's not. The culture may use that word. Jesus affirmed what God had established in Genesis 2. Jesus affirmed in Matthew 19. Did not God say a man that he made them male and female? And that a man shall leave his mother and father binary. Male, female, mother, father. And cleave to his wife man wife husband wife and the two shall become one flesh you can't be one flesh if you're of the same sex I don't care what how emotional people get about that it is a sin it is an affront to the creator God and his created order it is an affront to tell a child or a or an adult 
that they are the opposite sex that God made them. I don't care how much they mutilate their bodies. I don't care how many hormones they take. It's a sin. We, we're loving about that, yes. But we have to call it sin. We cannot acquiesce. We can't. And a lot of uh, churches have caved on it. A lot of denominations have caved on it. Whatever the Bible calls a sin is a sin. That's why Ezra, look at his example. He knew that this was wrong. He said, uh, you know, they're with us. All these nations are with us anyway. Might as well. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. You know, everybody's doing All the other nations are doing it. Well, you know, what's the big deal? It's not bothering you. It's not bothering me. No, what did he do? He tore his clothes. That was a sign of intense grief. He plucked his hair out of his beard. That was, that's very painful. I mean, sometimes I'm picking my hair out, it hurts. You know, picking these naps out. I can imagine plucking hair out, but that was a sign of indignation. That was a sign of righteous anger and grief. Which leads to our second principle. We mourn over sin, not its consequences. We ought to mourn over sin. Once sin is recognized, it must be mourned for and grieved over. And we saw this, we saw the same situation in the book of Nehemiah when Nehemiah came back and he had to deal with the same thing. Israel's reaction, I'm sorry, Ezra's reaction to the sins of God's people was one of great grief. Again, look at verse 3. Excuse me. When I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe. I plucked out some of the hair on my head and beard and sat down astonished don't let that word pass over you does sin astonish us as it should no it doesn't I'm afraid to say it doesn't our sins don't astonish us and other people's sins don't we're, we're not astonished anymore we, our, our consciences have been dulled because we've been browbeated by the culture we should flinch when we see some of the things that, that we see taking place. We should flinch when we see that over a million babies are murdered a, a, a year in the womb. It was just in the news uh, at UAB, uh, a premature baby that was born, what, at 20, 20 weeks? 21 weeks. The small, the, the, the most premature baby ever born. The, the twin died, but the, the boy survived. 20 weeks. Only weigh 14.8 ounces, not even a pound. That's like a can of peas. <laughs> you know, that's like a can of peas. It's about, what, 14, 15 ounces of a, a can of peas, a green, a little standard size. That baby weighed that much. And you got people saying that you should abort a baby at 20 months, 20 weeks, I'm sorry, or even at 40 weeks at full gestation. States like New York and Virginia have legislated infanticide that a baby can be born all the way up to birth. Yes. And you have a man in office who believes the same thing 
and it promotes the same thing. But you hear you are having a baby that's born at 20 weeks that survived. What does that show you? That shows us that man has no depth to his depravity. And things like this should cause us great grief when we see a 20-month-old baby surviving, but yet you have people saying that you can abort a baby at that age in the womb. That baby's still a person. It's not just a clump of cells. Some people believe that a baby is not a person until it's born. That's what they believe. They don't believe in the dignity of life in the womb or the sanctity of life in the womb, but as Bible-believing Christians, we have to. From the moment of fertilization, that is a person. That egg and that sperm coming together, fertilizing, is a person and has dignity and worth as a person. Why do you think that states have a law that if a woman is pregnant and she's killed by someone, that it's a double homicide if the baby dies too? That's showing us saying the same thing. They're contradicting their own worldview. Lacey Peterson, you know the, the case out there in California. She was she was almost nine months pregnant when, when her husband killed her, when they found her body. He was charged with two murders. The point is this. Things like that should grieve us when we see people who promote the murdering of innocent babies in the womb up to a million a year. So he was grieved. He was deeply grieved by the deep dishonor done to God because God had chastised them before and they didn't learn their lesson. Look what he said in verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation as it is this day. So he was saying the reason why all that happened was for the same reason, because they intermarried. So why are we doing it again? That's why he was grieved. Like, how can you make the same mistake again, Israel? That's what brought them to exile the first time, which humiliated us. Our temple was torn. The walls around Jerusalem that, that fortified the city were torn down. The Babylonians came in and took everything because what intermarriage led to. He also was deeply grieved because the danger of God's wrath was coming upon him. He knew that God would be just if he had punished him. He knew that. We just read in Deuteronomy what God said he would do. So he knew this. And he was also grieved because the trampling on of God's grace and mercy by his covenant people. Look at verses 8 and 9. And now for a little while, while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg, a, 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 a tiny place in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves 
Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild his ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So he was talking about how God's grace was with them. Then look at verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. So he was grieved because they trampled on God's grace. God had been so gracious to these people by bringing them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to reestablish temple worship, to reestablish the sacrificial system. And we ourselves can be just as guilty when we sin willingly despite God's grace and goodness to us. God is so good to us. God provides so much for us. And yet when we sin, especially willingly as these people did, knowing the consequences, we, we basically trample on God's grace. We take grace for granted. You know, Paul said in Romans 6 and 1 uh, to the Roman church, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Or in the Greek, uh, by no means no. We're not to do that. But that's what Israel did. They, they trample on his grace. So mourning over sin for the right reason matters. And we need to understand why we should mourn. We should mourn over sin, number one, because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 4 and 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. We mourn because sin separates us from God. And we mourn also because sin is rebellion against God. God told Saul that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. He says here, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as I was against your fathers. He was speaking to the prophet uh, Samuel. This is at Saul's coronation. Now, the thing is, God told them what would happen. He told them what would happen. Because, first of all, they were not supposed to have a king. But they wanted to be like the other nations. And God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting uh, me as king over them. If you fear the Lord and do not rebel, then you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord. But guess what Saul did? He rebelled against the Lord. He rebelled. Sin is rebellion against God. God has sent Saul on a mission to slay all the Amalekites, to not spare anything, nothing, even kill the king. 
King Agag. He was supposed to kill everything. No, don't spare animals, nothing. So he comes back. Samuel, you know, comes back from war, you know, victorious. He says, you know, Samuel, we've done all that the Lord had commanded. And then Samuel said, really? What is that bleeding of sheep I hear? Oh, no, yeah, we, 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 and that's, he said, you know, we, we say no to, you know, make sacrifice to God. But that's not what God had told him to do. He told him to destroy everything. And God had stripped the kingdom away from Saul because he rebelled. Mourning over our sins is a blessing when it is godly mourning. When we mourn over sin because we're truly sorrowful, it is a blessing. True mourning and grief comes from contemplating uh, Christ. Because we know that Christ bore our sins. That Christ was cursed because of our sins. That Christ died in our place for our sins. So when we mourn, we, we, we think about the work of, of the Savior and, and how much our sin cost him. That our sin cost him uh, his life. Our sins cost our Savior. And another thing is mourning over the consequences of sins is not true mourning. And that's what uh, a lot of Christians especially get uh, mixed up. Mourning must be distinguished from uh, the fear of the consequences. Some people mourn the consequences of the sin. Like, man, I really messed up. This is what's going to happen as a result of it. And, and you mourn because of that. But that's not true mourning. Mourning over consequences of sin is not true mourning. It is it is false, hypocritical sorrow. And Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, where he says, A godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Many people commit a sin, and they're more worried about the consequences than the fact that they committed the sin. They worry about what's going to happen as a result, but they're not worrying about the fact that they sin against God. And our last principle is this. Confess your sins without excuse to the God of mercy. After the word of the Lord shows us our sin, we must then confess our sins. And this prayer that we read by Ezra is a prayer of confession. And it offers us a pattern on how we can confess our sins before God. So what are the elements of his, his profession? Let's look at it. First of all, his posture demonstrates humility. He says at the evening sacrifice, verse 5, I rose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Kneeling demonstrates humility before the sovereign Lord. And spreading out hands often accompanied uh, petitions of prayer. We see it in 1 Kings 8 and then Psalm 28. We come humbly before the God against whom we have sinned. We may not get on our knees literally, 
but it is the posture of the heart where we're kneeling before God in humility because he is God and we are not. He is king and we are his subjects. And when we come before God in confession, we don't come before him with our chest stuck out loud and proud, justifying ourselves. No, we come before God humbly. And then next, he acknowledges the absolute righteousness of God and how he deals with us. In verse 15, he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though no one can stand before you because of this. No one can stand before God because of this sin. So he pleaded to the absolute righteousness of God's character. The fairness of God was never uh, to be questioned. Because he says, God, you are righteous. We are not. Because the Bible tells us that there's none who is righteous. There's none who seeks after God. Romans 3. There's none who does good. No, not one. None of us dare go before God pleading our goodness. We go to God pleading our sinfulness. Our unrighteousness. Our unfaithfulness to God. He is the God who is righteous. He is the God who is faithful. Another thing we see in this confession is that if you notice, he offered no excuse. He didn't complain about God's law. Not once in scripture do we see a confession that offers excuses or complaints against God. Not, not one. You survey scripture, you survey the various confessions of sin, you would not see one where an excuse was made. Oh Lord, your word is just too hard. And Ezra, in this chapter, he even included himself. He used the pronouns we, us, and our. He didn't say, Lord, they and them. He said, no, Lord, we have sinned. Us, our fathers. He offered no excuse. And friends, one of the worst things we can do is rationalize our sins. When we stand before God, we're going to stand before God. No one is going to be there beside us. None of our friends, none of our family members, your pastor is not going to be able to stand beside you on that great day. Because guess what? I'm going to have to give an account too. And we can't make it, we're not going to be able to make excuses. And say, Lord, it was because of how I grew up or it was because of the influence of my friends, or it was because I had alcohol in me, or, or whatever. It's because of, you know, my wife, or my husband, or my children, or my job, or no, we're not going to be able to give any of those excuses when we stand before this holy God. And nowhere in this confession, this prayer, did we see him make an excuse for this great sin. He cast the sins of the people on God's mercy, which is undeserved. It's undeserved. He does not ask for forgiveness, but instead he depends totally on God's mercy. Again, we see that in verses 13 through 15. 
he pleaded to God's mercy. I like what he said here in verse 14. He says, um, Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there will be no more remnant or survivor? God, you have the right to do that. But he pleaded to God's mercy because he knew had these people been cut off, then he would have violated his own covenant that he made with them. The great thing is that God still never gives us what we deserve. He said then in verse 13, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. God is as merciful now as he is in this text. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are reconciled to God. The cross was the mercy of God. Do you all know that? It was the mercy of God against sinners because guess what? Only Christ could bear the sins of the whole world. The cross was the mercy of God on display. We don't have to fear his wrath. Why? Because his wrath was poured out on the son. The cross was the wrath of God poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. That's why when we pray 1 John 1 and 9, it applies to us as believers. Uh, when we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is always the way to deal with our sins. Always the way. Amen. So lastly, our application series, we get ready to close. Ask God to give you a heart that mourns over your sin and the sins of others. I don't think we consider our sins enough sometimes and, and how grave they are against God. Ask God to give you a heart that mourns over your sin and also the sins of others, but your sins first. Number two, ask God to give you a holy zeal to obey his word. When we obey God's word, guess what? We won't sin. And this doesn't mean that we would never sin. It's not what this means. But when we sin, we know it and we confess it and we stay in the word. And ask God to give you the will to confess your sins regularly. Don't just wait till Sunday morning when we do our confession <laughs> of sin and try to, you know, pile it all in. No, no. Make a regular, if you don't do it every day, do it every day. <laughs> confess your sins to God because it softens your heart. It, it makes you aware. You go on sinning and not even thinking about it, guess what? Your, your conscience is, is going to become hardened. You're going to think, that sin didn't bother me. Yeah, it may not have bothered you, but it bothered the Lord. And it should bother you. If, if you it, this is the thing. This is not in here. But if you get to the point where your sin doesn't bother you, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. If your sin and rebellion doesn't bother you, you are in grave danger of hell. You are. Lastly, ask God to give you his mercy and grace. Grace enables us and mercy forgives us. Grace enables us to obey his commandment and live that life that he's called us to live. His mercy forgives us of our sins.
His mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for great men like Ezra who point us to Christ and how Christ has paid the price for our sins, how he became a curse for us, how your wrath against sin was poured out on him. Lord, we thank you that Christ did that work for us. Lord, help us to see our sin. Give us a heart that mourns over our sin. Lord, let our consciences not be seared. Let us not get used to sin. Lord, let us fight every day against sin, to not give in to it, to not uh, strive to live in it, Lord, but to fight against it. Lord, help us to confess our sins with regularity, not just waiting until Sunday morning when I pray our prayer of confession. Lord, I pray that you use this sermon to your glory, to bring honor to Christ, to bring salvation to sinners, and to encourage the faithful. In Christ's name I pray, amen.